James chapter 1. We're going to begin this morning in verse 9. And the title of this message is The Priority to Endure Trials. Uh, I have to tell you, my mind has been focused on trials for quite a while. Uh, and uh, as I prepared these messages, and I couldn't help but think that many of the truths um, that I've been thinking about have been, uh, we've just been singing about them and reading about them. So whoever selected the songs uh, for, to emphasize the truths about God's goodness in trials, uh, you've really set the, the introduction very nicely for this sermon. I appreciate that. On December 29th, 1972, Flight 401 departed JFK about 9.20 at night and climbed to its cruising altitude and headed south toward Florida. Everything was normal on this flight except for one thing that happened in first class where a man proposed to his girlfriend and she said yes. The flight was routine. A couple of hours later, the L-1011, the most modern airliner in the world, and actually built right here in Palmdale, I would imagine that some of us here even worked on that, began its approach to Miami. The flight crew ran through the approach checklist and the landing checklist. The weather was clear and the air crew had the runway in sight, and the landing seemed like it would be very routine. But when the pilot attempted to lower the landing gear, there was a problem. And a light failed to illuminate in the cockpit, indicating that the nose gear may not have been down and locked properly. So they raised and lowered the landing gear again, but the nose gear locked light did not come on. It wouldn't be a good idea to land in that condition until you can confirm that the landing gear is down because the nose gear might actually retract on landing. So they didn't want to do that. The air crew contacted the Miami Tower and informed them of the problem. They would have to circle the airport until the light came on or until they were able to visually uh, verify that the gear was down and locked. The tower told them to circle at 2,000 feet while they figured out the problem with the light. The flight engineer suggested, hey, you want me to test the lights? At the flight engineer's station, there's a button that would allow him to perform a so-called Christmas tree test, and it basically illuminates every light in the cockpit when you you hit that button. And you can determine if, if the light bulb is burned out, and he said, yeah, you should check that. So he flipped the Christmas tree switch, and all the cockpit lights came on except for the nose gear. The bulb was burned out. The only thing wrong with this aircraft was a burned-out cockpit light bulb. And the cost to replace this light bulb in 1972 was about five bucks. About four minutes later, Flight 401 crashed into the Florida Everglades, and 101 people lost their lives. There were 75 survivors. The National Transportation Safety Board cited the cause of the crash as pilot error. The pilot did not prioritize the right tasks. He prioritized troubleshooting a light bulb instead of flying the airplane. The burned out light distracted them. And instead of ensuring that they maintained their altitude, they focused on the wrong thing and that airplane went into the Everglades. And some of you may remember, I actually remember that. Over the years, I worked at Edwards Air Force Base, and I've heard it briefed numerous times at nearly every pre-flight briefing. Hey, if there's an accident, 
you need to find, you need to concentrate on three things: aviate, navigate, communicate. That's your priority if you have an in-flight emergency. As a pilot, if you have one of those emergencies, you need to prioritize your tasks appropriately. Aviate, you need to maintain control of the airplane. Keep flying it. Don't hit the ground. Don't hit anything else. That's really important. Navigate, analyze the situation. Think about where you're going. Take the proper actions. And lastly, communicate. Notify others of the problem. These priorities may seem obvious to each of us in an air-conditioned room, sitting on pews, and we're not going very fast. But when you're flying an aircraft and you encounter an emergency, prioritizing your attention correctly can be difficult. Prioritizing the wrong things can have disastrous consequences. Prioritizing the wrong things when you and I encounter trials in our life can also have disastrous consequences. James, the half-brother of Jesus, has written a letter to the first century Jewish believers who really need to prioritize things in their life because they are undergoing trials. They're experiencing real-life emergencies. Because of the religious persecution, some of them had lost jobs, they'd lost, lost homes, they'd lost family members. So James begins this letter to address the topic on all their minds. How do you understand and respond to trials? How do you prioritize your time and attention in these difficult situations. They had an emergency, and they needed to understand how to deal with it in a way that's honoring to the Lord. Let me give you the cliff notes here. Genuine saving faith honors God in trials. Genuine believers expect trials to come. And when they come, real faith isn't jettisoned. You don't abandon your faith in God. Genuine born-again Christians honor God in the midst of trials. They choose to believe and trust God when trials get, when things get hard. And that's James's point in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 12. In James, uh, in verse 2, James says we should expect trials to come as believers. He says when trials come, not if trials trials come, and he has an S on the end of trials. It's plural. Don't expect one and done. This is a continuous process that we are going to encounter as Christians. For the believers, trials need to be counted, on, counted as an occasion for joy because trials are a sign that God is working out and working in your faith. He's fortifying your faith with endurance We sang about that this morning, how firm a foundation when fiery trials come. It is good to know that God is working in us and through us to strengthen and mature us. So we'll have a faith that doesn't have any holes in it. There's no deficiencies. We lack nothing. In James 1, 5 to 8, James says that when we're in the midst of trials, we need to ask God for wisdom. And the way he's written it it implies that Every one of us lacks wisdom. It doesn't matter if you have a a PhD in Old Testament theology or you've never graduated from high school yet. You all need wisdom. You and I need wisdom. Trials are difficult. They come in all sizes and shapes. And there are times in life when they come at us and we don't know what to do. So James says, ask God for wisdom. We need it. 
And this is a God who will give to all the wisdom we need generously and without reproach. God delights to answer those prayers for wisdom when we ask in faith without doubting, without being double-minded. Double-minded doubters who ask God for wisdom will not get anything from the Lord. Both of these sermons are are online if you want the uncondensed version of them. This morning we're going to focus primarily on verses 9 to 12 as James finishes up this initial teaching on, on trials. So if you haven't already turned there, if you would open your Bibles to James chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In these verses, James gives us two ways to prioritize our attention in order to endure the troubles and adversities of life and honor God. James wants to ensure that as we encounter various trials, we don't focus on the wrong things and we do focus on the right things. It's been well said that the the most important thing is to make sure the most important thing is the most important thing. And that's what James is saying here. As followers of Christ, what should be our priority when we get the news that there's been an accident? Dad's on his way to the hospital. The test results have come back and it's cancer. Or your child has a rare disease. You've had a miscarriage. I think we can agree that all of those would be very difficult and painful and challenging trials to go through. And it might be difficult in those times to prioritize the thoughts and intentions of our heart in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, in a way that honors Him when those trials come upon us. Thankfully, not every trial is a life and death situation, but other trials that maybe are a little bit more bite-sized can be just as difficult and challenging, and require us to prioritize our thinking and our actions as well. The refrigerator just quit working. The water heater doesn't work. The air conditioner, on a day like this, that could be a real trial if it's not working, right? The sprinklers are leaking again. I have homework. My close friend seems to have abandoned me. The transmission needs to be rebuilt and it's going to be expensive. The 50-year-old plumbing in the fireside needs to be completely replaced. And that's going to be a big job. Saints, how should you and I prioritize our thinking in times like those? How should we prioritize the way we respond when trials come upon us? What are your spiritual priorities in your emergency? Well, I think James answers these questions for us in the text we're going to look at this morning. In James 1, 9-12, James gives us 
two ways to prioritize our attention in order to endure trials and honor God. Let me repeat that. This is the outline for this morning. In James 1, 9-12, James gives us two ways to prioritize our attention in order to endure trials and honor God. And the first way to prioritize your attention during a trial is this. Look past your earthly circumstances. Look past your earthly circumstances. Let me read verses 9 through 11 again. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. And its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. You may be thinking that these verses seem out of place in this uh, larger context about trials. How do these verses fit in with with what James has already taught and what James is going to teach in verse 12? What do they even mean? What do these verses have to do with the subject of trials? Or are they a new teaching about something else? And I have to admit, uh, I've read the the book of James numerous times over my life and then uh, a lot more as I prepared to preach this. And I've wondered the same thing numerous times. As it turns out, if you're thinking those things, uh, you're not alone. Even the commentators disagree with how these verses fit in the larger context. Some see, and I'm going to quote this, there is no connection to what has preceded. And there are others who admit there's a connection, but it's not clear what the exact connection is. And some seem to be unclear as to even what these mean. But I think the key to understanding this little section from 9 to 11 revolves around one word. So if you have your uh, New American Standard Bible, uh, look at verse 9, and the first word in your Bible is the word but. It's a simple conjunction. In the Greek, it's, it's there. Uh, there are some, um, I'll say there are some translations of your Bible that do not include that little conjunction. They don't see a connection. And so they just, they move right along. Uh, ESV, the NIV, the King James, and the New King James all translate this verse without that word but. Uh, The New American Standard, the American Standard, and a few others translate this verse into English by beginning with the word but. And that's a lot of talk about one particular word that you may or may not even have in your Bible. But I think it's the key to understanding and unpacking this particular verse for us in English. That word but is a conjunction that frequently, although not always, serves to introduce something else with the implication of a contrast. And I think that's what James is doing here. I believe what James is doing here is he's contrasting that doubting, double-minded guy that we just encountered in verses 6 through 8 with the way a believer, whether they're rich or poor, ought to respond with wisdom and honor God in the midst of their trial. So in contrast to the double-minded doubter, this is the way you should respond. And it doesn't matter what kind of trial you're on. It doesn't matter what your, your external circumstances are. This is the way I want you to respond. In Greek, this word, uh, notice what he says. He says, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. 
And this, notice that he is a believer. He refers to him as a, a brother. This is a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. It's a, a Jewish first century believer that is undergoing persecution. And if you're of humble circumstances, and, and that word is and its derivatives were used in the Greek culture to really describe somebody of low standing. Literally, this word means low-lying or not rising far from the ground. This was to be low on the social scale, to be in poverty, to be socially powerless, to be politically powerless. This adjective in Greek culture was always used to describe somebody with contempt. This is not somebody that you want as a friend. They were shameful. But this word has been redeemed in the New Testament. It's only used eight times, but all of them are used in a very positive sense, including one time when Jesus used the word to describe himself. Listen as I read Matthew 11, verse 29. Jesus himself says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble, and here that's our word, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. James uses this word later in in his letter in James 4, 6. He says, but he gives grace, greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The brother of humble circumstances, the one who is at the bottom of the social ladder, the one who doesn't have a lot to offer, the one who is seen as the lowest of the low, this person is to glory or boast in or take pride in or rejoice in his high position. And you need to understand that he's commanding this. This is not a suggestion. It's a good idea to take your mind off your troubles. No, he's saying you must do this and you must make it your habit to do this. You need to glory in his high position. And this isn't a brother who's won the first century lottery and suddenly his social status and his worldly wealth is increased and that's the trial he's got to go through. That's not what is happening here. This is a poor brother. When he experiences a trial, he needs to look past his earthly circumstances and boast in and take pride in and rejoice in his position in Christ. I think that's what James is getting at here. James is saying, don't be discouraged. You need to look past your current circumstances to your spiritual wealth as a result of being rightly related to the God of the universe. You need to evaluate and think about your trial in light of your eternal standing with the God who spoke all things into existence by the word of his power. You're a joint heir with that God. He's to rejoice and boast in the fact that God the Father, as, as the Apostle Paul wrote in, in Ephesians, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Those are the kinds of things you need to focus on. Don't focus on your earthly circumstances. Think about your high position in Christ and being rightly related to him. Look what James says to the rich guy. In verse 10 he says, And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. And the commentators have a lot written about, is the rich guy a believer or is he a non-believer? Because he doesn't use the word brother in verse 10 like he did in verse 9. 
But I think the best way to understand this is he is another believer. He is more well off than the the poor guy. If you were to translate verses 9 and 10 from the Greek word for word, it might read something like this. But the brother, the humble one, he must glory in his height, but the rich one in his humiliation. And, And I want you to notice that James doesn't use brother or the verb Um, glory in the second half of the sentence the brother the humble one he must glory in his height but the second half just says but the rich one in his humiliation and I think the most natural way to interpret the grammar that goes around all of this is that brother applies to both the humble one and the rich one and glory the verb in the sentence is commanded of both the humble and the rich as well it would and it would seem overly sarcastic to tell somebody who is a non-believer to glory in your humiliation. I don't think that's what James is doing here. I think it's best to see verses 9 and 10 as dealing with brothers, fellow believers. And I think what he's saying is, in the same way the poor are to boast in their present spiritual condition because they're rightly related to Christ and their future spiritual destiny is secure, the rich must boast in the same way. You're rightly related to Christ. You must use the wisdom God has provided to look beyond your earthly circumstances and focus your attention on the spiritual realities of being a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Both must rejoice in and take comfort in and concentrate on the fact that their earthly circumstances don't change the spiritual reality of being loved by a sovereign God who intends the trial for their good. God intends this trial to mature you and make you whole. The temptation for a rich person might be to trust in their wealth rather than to trust in their riches in Christ. However, the loss of wealth from persecution or some other adversity gives the rich person an opportunity to acknowledge their dependence upon Christ rather than their wealth. And what James is saying is earthly riches are temporary. Our trials are temporary. Our lives are temporary. And James wants to make sure the rich get the point, so he continues in verse 10. He says, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Notice it's him, not his wealth. It's he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass And its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. The environment of Israel in the Middle East at this time is much like the environment of the Antelope Valley. We got a ton of rain this last winter, and if you remember back only a few months ago, the trees were, or not the trees, the hills were green. They were filled with wildflowers. Everything looked beautiful. It was full of life. Everything was blooming. And you fast forward to June and and now into July, and the Santa Ana winds have, have scorched the earth and withered the grass and the flowers are dead. The vegetation is brown and the appearance of life and beauty is destroyed. Israel was the same way. The winds that would come from the east would, in the summer, would just roast it and turn everything that was green brown. These verses are not written about the condemnation at the judgment, but about the transitory nature of our lives and whatever wealth we have accumulated. 
James is saying that one day soon you will die. Whether you're rich or poor, you will die and your wealth is going to die with you. James is saying in these verses that both rich and poor may be tempted to trust in wealth in various ways, in different ways. The poor man may think, if only I had more money, things would be different. If I, if I only had more resources, um, I, this trial wouldn't be so bad. And the rich may have the opposite temptation in a trial. I'm so thankful I've got all these, this, I've got a big bank account and I've got a, a hefty 401k. This trial isn't that bad for me. James wants you, and it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, he wants you to trust in and boast in your spiritual relationship with God. In the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your hardships, that should be our focus. When you're in the midst of difficult times, don't waste your time worrying about your wealth Don't let that color the way you view trials. Don't focus your energy on the burned out light bulb like the crew of Flight 401. Don't prioritize all your attention and all your focus on your earthly circumstances. Consider trials an opportunity for joy. Ask God for wisdom without doubting. Take appropriate action that aligns with Scripture and look past those immediate earthly circumstances Boast in God. Rejoice in your spiritual status with God. Meditate on God. Trust in God. Some verses I memorized many years ago, and I'm sure many of you have memorized them as well. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, what James is saying here really reminds me of those verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. James might say, boast in him, rejoice in him, take pride in him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. James says, look past your earthly circumstances. Prioritize your time and attention differently. And James gives us a second way to prioritize our attention in order to endure trials and honor God. The first way to prioritize your attention during a trial is to look past your earthly circumstances. And the second way is in verse 12, and it's look forward to your heavenly reward. Look forward to your heavenly reward. Let me slowly unpack this verse, and then I'm going to put it all together at the end. James 1, verse 12 says, Blessed. I'm going to stop there. We won't do one, ver- one word at a time as we go through this, but you need to understand that, that James is saying, Blessed. And that means to be a, in a divine state of approval. It's an inner quality of joy that is not dependent upon external circumstances. It's to be satisfied, it's to be content. That word blessed is the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus begins his sermon with nine consecutive beatitudes, and they all begin with the word blessed. In each of these beatitudes, Jesus unveiled shocking truths that were the exact opposite of what people would have expected the blessed person to look like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the the gentle. Blessed are 
those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted on account of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and say all manner of evil against you. Those people who heard Jesus speak that day did not think any of those things was the way to blessing. But it's different in God's kingdom and the way God judges. James gives us another beatitude here in verse 12. Just like those beatitudes preached by his half-brother, this truth is shocking. And it's not the way we tend to think. James does not say, blessed is the man who does not experience trials. He does not say, blessed is the man whose trials are short and light. He does not say, blessed is the man who escapes trials. He says something more shocking. He says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trials. And we've seen that word perseveres before, but it's, it's that word hupomone. It's the Greek word to remain under pressure. It's steadfastness. It's a stand firm type of word. Go back with me in James chapter 1 to verse 2. Notice what James says. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And there's our, the noun form of this particular word for persevere. And let endurance, and, and here it is again, that word hupomone, have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word perseveres in verse 12 is not a passive grin and bear it type of word. James has constructed the, the tense of this word perseveres to show that, that the blessed man is the one who makes it their habit to continually remain under the trial, refusing to give up. This is not perfection in the face of a trial. This is not a trial that you've gone through and, and you never sinned. Sin can be repented of and forgiven. James is saying, blessed is the man who perseveres, who refuses to give up, who refuses to give in to the trial. This is the one who continually dedicates themselves to being God's kind of believer in the midst of the trial, under the trial. One commentator defined perseveres as the ability to endure when circumstances are difficult. Not a passive sitting down and bearing things, but a triumphant facing of them so that even out of evil there can come good. A bearing up in a way that honors and glorifies our Heavenly Father. James says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Then he says, For, and you might say, Because. And here's the reason that person is blessed. For, once he has been approved... And that word approved is, is the same word from back in verse 3. It's the idea of being tested. It's that refining testing that they did with metals to remove the dross. To show itself to be genuine. For once he has been approved, approved has the idea of someone who's passed the test and their faith is intact. This is the one who's committed to being God's kind of Christian regardless of the external difficulties and adversities. This is the one who keeps running the course and keeps running the race that God has set before him. 
This is the one who has gone through the fiery trial and has not been consumed as counterfeit. When the time of testing is over, there is a heavenly reward for those who persevere in trials and who glory in God during trials. Notice, he says, he will receive. He will take hold of the crown of life. And this is the victor's wreath that was put on a victor in an athletic competition. They've persevered in the race. They've competed according to the rules. Paul called this the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. Peter called this the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5 verse 4. The crown of life is another way of saying eternal life. And this crown, this heavenly reward, according to James, is that which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Our God, the one who cannot lie, has made a legally binding declaration in his word that he will give the person who perseveres and loves this crown. As we love God, as our faith in God holds fast in and through times of trial and adversity and difficulties, we can look forward to our heavenly reward, the crown of life. As you follow the argument that James is making here, I I would have expected something a little bit different. I might have expected, if I were writing it, James James 1 verse 12 to say something like this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who persevere. I might have expected that. I might have said that the Lord has promised to those who consider trials a joy. I might have said that the Lord has promised to those who obey and express faith without doubting. I might have said a lot of things But that's not what James says. James says the crown of life is promised to those who love him. Why love? Why did James say love? And the answer is those who love God are the exact same ones who will persevere. Love for Christ motivates us to persevere and endure trials. Love for Christ keeps us from falling away in times of adversity. Love for Christ does not exempt us from trials, but it gives us the strength to persevere under trials. Love for Christ puts rebar into our faith and concrete into our faith and steel into our faith so that we can stand firm no matter what the cost. Perseverance is the inevitable result of love for Christ. And this is the part that, that I, 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 I need to communicate as clearly as I can. Because it's important. Perseverance under trials and enduring adversity till the end does not earn a person eternal life. It does not earn a person the crown of life. Perseverance does not result in salvation or eternal life. As a matter of fact, Scripture teaches the exact opposite of that concept. Perseverance is the evidence that a person will inherit eternal life as a result of salvation. Perseverance is the evidence. It's the proof that someone has genuine saving faith. You need to hear this. The crown of life is received by every genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. Saints, if you've been born again, 
you're in verse 12. That's really cool. This is not some special class of, of Christians who love suffering. It's every believer in Jesus Christ is in verse 12. If you have turned from your sin and you've submitted to the Lordship of Christ, you are the one. You're the man, you're the woman, you're the young person who will receive the crown of life. The crown of life is promised to those who love God. Who are those that love God? They're genuine believers. Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, they will keep my commandments. The love of God and obedience to his commands are the mark of every believer in Jesus Christ. Those are not optional. They characterize every genuine believer. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if, you, if anyone does not love God, he is to be accursed. That describes somebody who is a non-believer. Obviously, those who don't love God are not Christians. Brothers and sisters, here is the really, really, really good news in verse 12. The crown of life is not promised The crown of life is not based on our performance in trials, but it is based on God's promise to keep us in and through our trials. That's really good news. That is really cool. Make no mistake, each of us has a responsibility to abide in Christ and persevere in the faith. Listen as I read John, 1 John 2, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him. It's a commandment. It's not an option. It's a commandment. Abide in him. This is no let go and let, let God. This is not, uh, a, this is not a, a do-nothing Christianity. Abide in him. Do this and keep doing it, so that when he appears, he may have confidence and not shrink back, shrink back from him in shame at his coming. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6. I want you to see this for yourself. First Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. This is Paul to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6 verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins these these verses with two commandments to Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. You know what that word fight means? means fight. It means agonize. It's agonizomai. Struggle. Strive. You have a responsibility to do this. You have a responsibility to be faithful to Christ until he returns or calls us home. This is not a call to do nothing Christianity. This is a call to fight with all your worth. You have that as a responsibility to persevere. He says, take hold. That's your responsibility. It's a command. Take hold of eternal life to which you are called. But here's the good news. That is all true. We need to strive and struggle with all of our effort. But God ensures we're successful if we love him. 
What does God do to ensure we persevere in our faith with our faith intact? Listen to John 10, verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I will give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Listen to the words of Paul. Romans 8, starting in verse 38. Yes, Romans goes beyond Romans 8, 28. It goes all the way much farther. Romans 8, 38 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor any other thing, created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It seems like hardships... And adversities and trials are, are things present or things to come. And God has promised that nothing will separate us from his love. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the one who keeps us saved. Hebrews 7, verse 25, listen as I read. Therefore he, this is Jesus, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is good news. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, is even now at the right hand of God making intersection, intercession for those who are his, to those who love him. Jesus himself, the half-brother of James, will ensure we persevere in and through our trials right to that final day. James is saying that when you encounter an emergency situation in your life, don't be distracted by the wrong things. That can be disastrous. But prioritize your time and attention on the right things. As you encounter trials, you look past your earthly circumstances and you look forward to your heavenly reward. Focus the thoughts and intentions of your heart on on the crown of life, which is eternal life, promised to those who love God. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Rejoice in the promise that those who love God will persevere to the end, no matter how difficult the trial. Be encouraged that Jesus himself is interceding for you to ensure that you persevere and receive your heavenly reward, the crown of life. Some of you may be thinking, Chuck, I've, I've known people who were active in the church, who profess faith in Christ, maybe even family members, who got baptized, who joined the church, who served faithfully for years, and I've seen them walk away from the faith. What about them? Maybe it's a diagnosis of cancer. Maybe it's the death of a spouse. Maybe it's a difficult relationship with another church member. They didn't persevere. What about those guys? Well, the Bible teaches that those who profess faith in Christ but later walk away, either from trials or or just the cares of the world, if someone does not remain with Christ until the end, they were not really saved to begin with. 1 John 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. 
but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. When those people who profess faith in Christ leave the church and walk away from the faith, they didn't lose their salvation. They never had salvation. Jesus himself says that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. We can easily be deceived as to our true spiritual condition. This is another reason why it is so good of God to bring trials into our life. I'm so thankful that he does this. Not only are trials used by God to mature our faith and add rebar and steel to our faith so that we can stand firm, but trials are also a way to test us to see if we really are in the faith. And by the way, God knows. God doesn't bring the test on to figure out whether you really are one of his or not. He knows. The problem is we don't know. And as we pass those tests, as our faith is matured, It gives evidence that we have genuine saving faith. Over the past few years, I've had two of my best friends that were both spiritual mentors to me die at the end of long battles with cancer. My own faith was strengthened as I saw them love Christ and talk of their love for Christ and cling to Christ up to their last day. There were times where I was able to visit in person or they visited me. There was numerous emails, lots of phone calls. As I thought about James 1 and trials, the godly examples of these two men often came to mind. They both persevered to the end and they both received the crown of life promised to those who love Christ. And both of these men had the same prayer request continually. They didn't know each other, but they were followers of Christ and brothers. But it was and it was never for their healing. And by the way, they both sought treatment for cancer. They were going through a lot of those medical things. They didn't just grin and bear it. They they sought to be cured. But that's not what they asked for prayer for. This is what they said. Chuck, will you pray that I'll be God's kind of husband? as I go through cancer. God's kind of father, that I'd be God's kind of pastor as I walk through this. I just want to be faithful. They weren't double-minded. Not once did I hear them express doubt in God's goodness or God's plan. And both of these men had the same exact perspective and priorities. They both look past their earthly circumstances toward their heavenly reward. And both of these men referred to their cancer as momentary light affliction. For those of us who observed it from the outside, it didn't look momentary and it didn't look light. But they were focused on their heavenly reward. Both of these men expressed an unwavering faith in the truth expressed by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. And it's a teaching that really doubles down on what James has said here. And it reinforces the truth we've just examined in verses 2 to 12 here in, verse, in chapter 1. And I'm going to close with what Paul wrote. 
for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Amen. Father, we thank you for your kindness that you've shown to us. We thank you for the instructions through the Apostle Paul on how to endure trials in a way that's pleasing in your sight. And Lord, we thank you for those of us who have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ that 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 crown of life is not based upon our performance in trials, but it's based upon your promise to keep us in and through trials. And for that we say thank you, O God. And for those who are here this morning, Lord, who have not yet come all the way to saving faith, Lord, I would ask that you might convict and convert these dear friends and family members. You might draw them with an irresistible call toward Christ and that they might commit themselves and repent of their sin and follow you all the days of their life for their good and for your glory. And Lord, we pray these things because we believe them to be your will. Amen.